You're listening to On the Record Online with Eric Schwartzman, where reporters and journalists go on the record about how they use the Internet to cover the news. For the latest trends, tips, and tactics on how the web shapes popular opinion, subscribe to our RSS news feed or visit us online at www.ipressroom.com. From CES 2007 in Las Vegas, podcasters go on the record online. An interesting thing to me that happened with Starbucks is the minute you hear it, you realize what the purpose was. And it was what the marketing person wanted you to hear. It was the idea of selling the Starbucks brand. It was not what the listener wanted. And that's the one trick with a podcast. If you're not making the thing that the listener wants, they're not going to retrieve it. And so it's easy to sit in a boardroom and say, well, we need to push this, we need to push this. This is what we want to push on the person. And you end up with a podcast that talks at the listener as opposed to with the listener. And because the listener controls the subscription, they just turn it off. And thank you for downloading another episode of On the Record Online, the podcast that brings you the story behind the story. I'm your host, Eric Schwartzman, founder and chairman of iPressroom Corporation. And I am also uh, personally and professionally fascinated at how the web is changing the way organizations communicate and the way people consume media and information. Um, Today we have a special kind of show for you. Usually we do an interview with either a journalist from the mainstream media or a blogger or a podcaster or a newsmaker of some kind. Today what we have is an audio transcript of a panel on podcasting uh, that um, happened at CES 2007 in Las Vegas. Um, and uh, we're going to play that for you as the show. Uh, and I think you, I think you might enjoy it. Uh, if you want to subscribe to this podcast, you can do that at www.ontherecordpodcast.com. If you have uh, questions or comments or feedback or suggestions for future guests, please email that to Eric at ontherecordpodcast.com. We love getting your suggestions. I love getting your suggestions. So if you have them, feedback, comments, anything, good or bad, please send it to me. Uh, so as I said, uh, this is a, a panel uh, that happened at CES, and it was moderated by Tim Borkwin. He is the um, one of the two podcast brothers with his, uh, with his brother Emil Borkwin, and also uh, the organizer of podcast and portable media expo which is a great trade show about podcasting and also we had michael gohagen um who uh, is the author of podcast solutions and jason van orden who uh, wrote a book called promoting your podcast uh and yours truly i was on the panel as well and you know there also was a gentleman added at the last minute who was um uh, an executive manager with street iq and unfortunately, um, I, I forgot his name. He's not on the website. And I went to the Street IQ website to try to find his name, and there's nothing about the organization other than um, a simple About Us page with nobody's name listed. So if you're listening, um, Mr. Street IQ, I apologize. I would have liked to have said your name, but it wasn't on the website, so I, and I couldn't remember it. So it's not there. I want to mention to you, if you're listening, 
um, about a, an opportunity, a, a professional development opportunity. Uh, I'm going to be teaching a course at UCLA Extension called An Introduction to New Media PR, which starts January 21st, 2007, and runs through February 21st, uh, 2007. Actually, it's, I'm sorry, January 24th through February 21st. It's basically five, uh, five Wednesday evenings. Starts at 7 p.m., so, you know, if you work by day, uh, you can certainly get there by night. It's on UCLA's beautiful campus, just a stone's throw from the uh, Taser incident where they... Uh, uh, the YouTube uh, person uh, filmed uh, uh, some police brutality on campus. Uh, so, you know, we can talk about that as well. Uh, but we're going to have some great speakers. And the one thing I did want to mention is for the last course, which is going to be on February 21st uh, on the evening of, we have, have gonna, we're going to have a really amazing panel. I've assembled a new media super panel uh, with um, the GM from LATimes.com, Rob Barrett, really smart guy leading uh, the newspaper's um, online migration. Uh, also, we're going to have Kevin Roderick, who's the editor of LAobserved.com, which is a great local LA blog about the media. He is a media veteran. Uh, very, very lucky to have him. As well as Claude Brodesser, who many of you may know used to write for Variety and since has left Variety and does a show for KCRW called The Business, which is also syndicated on NPR. It's about show business. And he also is a blogger at TMZ.com. So really looking forward to getting those minds together and talking about some of the issues confronting um, us from a PR and a media perspective. Uh, so now, without any more rambling, I am going to play for you the panel uh, recording uh, from CES 2007 after this. Don't be left behind. Get the latest online PR tools and services from my press room. Powerful, easy to use, available on demand. Extend your sphere of influence online with iPressroom, tools for online media centers, virtual private press rooms, RSS news feeds, podcasts, and more at www.ipressroom.com. iPressroom, always on, even when you're off. So let me just introduce myself. Um, I'm Tim Berkman. I'm the founder and CEO of TNC New Media. We do the podcast and New Media Expo, and we also do a series of other podcasts uh, for different niche audiences. Uh, EndurancePlanet.com is one, which is a podcast for triathletes and adventure racers and marathon runners. We have one called TraderInterviews.com, which is for online investors and traders. And then we have one called Small Business Podcast, which, as the name uh, implies, is for entrepreneurs and small business owners. So what I'm going to do is introduce our, our panelists with a quick bio, and then we're going to get right into questions. And because we've got a small group, we'll take audience questions uh, right away, uh, if you have any. So raise your hand, and we'll, we'll get to, through all of them, I think, in the next hour or so. But uh, each of the panelists um, we wanted to bring in because they kind of have a unique uh, aspect or and expertise when it comes to podcasting. So uh, through all of us, hopefully we'll give you the information you need and can answer the questions you have about uh, how to implement a podcasting program. Just a quick, uh, just so we know who's in the audience, how many people here, if you could just raise your hand, are already podcasting? Do we have any podcastings already? Okay. Three. The rest of you are looking into podcasting, I'm assuming, to uh, either promote a company or promote a product or a product launch or some PR capability or marketing or promotion. So we're going to hopefully give you some tips and ideas about ways you can do that effectively here. So on my uh, immediate left is Jason Ed Norton. He's an author, podcaster, and podcast consultant. His website, howtocreateapodcast.com, draws thousands of visitors every month. 
with its combination of technical tips and marketing strategies. He's also an author of a book, as I mentioned, it's called Promoting Your Podcast, and it draws on his experience as a podcaster and an internet marketer to outline several proven strategies for podcasters and to get more listeners. To his left is uh, Eric Schwartzman. He's founder and chairman of iPressroom Corp. He is the former director of promotions at Rogers and Callan established, and he established Schwartzman and Associates in 1999 to help technology, media, and entertainment companies integrate the web into their public relations, corporate communications, and marketing initiatives. And he's also the founder and president of iPressroom, which helps organizations extend the impact of their public relations and communications and marketing programs through hosted web-based online public relations tools and services. And he's handled PR uh, at world-class media events, including Cirque du Soleil at Academy Awards, Salt Lake City Olympics, the Grammy Awards, MTV Awards, and the most recent Britney Spears World Tour. He's been podcasting since April 2005. That's another reason, of course, we selected these panelists, because they've been podcasting pretty much since podcasting existed, so they've got a lot of uh, experience under their belt. Michael Gohagen is next. He's the author of Podcast Solutions, and he's also the CEO of Gigabox Media. Uh, Gigabox Media is a company that develops and produces exclusive technology-related audio content, which includes the IT Conversations Network. He also founded Wilnick Productions, and he's created some of the first corporate podcasts, including the official podcast of the Disneyland Resort. And uh, his other podcasting initiatives are uh, Real Reviews, Films Worth Watching, which is a movie podcast, one of the actually the very first, probably when there were about 12 podcasts out there, Michael's was one of those first 12. He's also the uh, creator of Grape Radio, which is a, one of the, probably the premier wine podcast. He's also founded uh, PrivateCast, which is an enterprise-level solution for secure RSS currently used by Duke University. He's the uh, co-author, as I mentioned, of Podcast Solutions, the complete guide to podcasting. And then Wing Yu, at the end there, he's the CEO of Street IQ. He's the editor-in-chief of Street IQ as well.com, and, uh, and he's a leading director of business podcasts and the CEO of financial content, a provider of stock market data and news to online media and financial services portals. And uh, Wing's got some ex- particular experience in using podcasts for investor relations, too, which is why I want him on the panel. So we're just going to jump right into this first question that I have uh, to try and get some information out there for you that you can use. And... Um, one of the things that you've probably seen in the media is companies that have started a podcasting initiative, some of them have done very well, and some of them have kind of fallen flat, and they've been burned in the media for some of the initiatives that haven't worked out so well. So I'm just going to start to my left, and, and Jason, if you're able to give us a, a couple of examples of setting up a podcasting uh, initiative that's going to be set up for success. And was, can you give us some examples of some podcasts that have done very well, and maybe what are those characteristics that they have? Um, definitely one thing that I think gets underestimated when companies start a podcast is just there's some of the smaller details of the, of the technology and things. This is where it can you know, be useful to bring in some help with the, some outside help with consulting or whatever. Is, um, you know, what, what kinds of information and, and, and data need to be included with your audio files and how do you best present yourself through the podcasting portals such as iTunes and um, to get your, your message out there. So, and what kind of information needs to be in the feed so that it's best recognized by these portals and you get maximum exposure. Uh, you know, so there's lots of little details. It's more than just recording an audio and an MP3 and slapping it on your site. Um, you know, some of these smaller technical details and standards that also help uh, to, to push it out there. But then I think the other thing too is just to, to keep in mind that the real reason you should be starting a podcast is to offer quality content that your constituents, your, your clients, your customers can live without and that's going to bring them towards you and uh, coming back and again and again to maintain that relationship. 
Um, you don't want to just be regurgitating your your press releases, just you know reading them reading them out, or you know this isn't the, the most effective way. And um, you know a, a, one of the podcasts that gets uh, gets mentioned quite a bit on a corporate level is the Whirlpool podcast, and you know they don't just get on the on the mic and talk about appliances, but they get on the mic and talk about things that really matter to their uh, to their customers, you know, about family life and, and issues that the American family deals with. And so this is the kind of content that keeps them coming back and interacting with their brand again and again. We should probably back up and actually define podcasting too. We can each do that as part of our, our answers, but I'll, I'll define it first in that it's just audio for the web, but the, what makes it a, a podcast is that you can subscribe to it. In other words, the audio will come to you if you subscribe to the RSS feed. Um, so we're going to talk a little bit about some of the nuances of setting up an RSS feed, although we're not going to get too much into the how-to. But Eric, I want to ask you, you've, you've done a lot of podcasting initiatives for other companies. Um, if somebody knows they want to start a podcast because it's the, the hot new medium and, and they know what they want to reach out to an audience, but they don't really know what how to begin, should they start with an interview-based show? Should they interview the CEO? Um, what have you found has worked if somebody wants to start out from zero? Well, I think what's important is to look at the content that's already in place that's not getting out there because it's a lot of work to produce original content. So ask yourself, what is going on inside the organization that's not getting heard? What experts are inside the organizations who are really bright and really uh, articulate, but for some reason uh, they only talk one-on-one with customers or one-on-one with salespeople? How can you figure out what's going on already that's interesting and compelling where all you have to do is put a microphone in front of them and then use the power of the, the web to go one-to-many. Uh, the important thing, I think, to think about is it's this is about uh, adding a new level of transparency to your marketing communications efforts. You know, marketing used to be about what you say, right? about what a company said to the world. But increasingly, it's becoming about what you do because the internet has provided new transparency. So you can't just go out there and say, hey, we're a great company, we have a great product, buy our product, because people have access to personal publishing tools like blogs and podcasts, and they're going to cry foul, and they're going to call you on it. We can just look at examples in the mainstream media, regardless of your political affiliation, if you would argue that Karl Rove is a very gifted communicator who's done an excellent job communicating policy, but what happens when someone with a camera phone films Saddam Hussein, you know, and it looks more like a lynch mob than the rule of law? It doesn't matter how loud you shout, it doesn't matter how much media you buy or how effective your marketing campaign is, if you don't deliver on your actual message, uh, you're not going to win. Michael, expanding on what Eric was talking about, you started the Disneyland Resort podcast. Disney, probably, of course, one of the companies I would imagine that really wants to keep control of the message to make sure they, have, they put the right foot forward. What did you find when you started doing a podcast that, because podcasting is a little more transparent, a little different than probably standard media, how were they with that initially? Well, when we first did the original Disneyland podcast, this was May of uh, 05. That was one of the first kind of corporate initiatives. And we were blessed in the sense that it was something that was added to their 50th anniversary at the last minute. Literally five days before an event they planned for for about three years. And so we were brought in. We were asked to make a daily podcast for 45 minutes in length. We were given somebody who would escort us around. Uh, we were given backstage access. And that was about it. 
So the nice thing was there were no committee meetings to say, here's what you have to say, what you can't say. Um, and they were really uh, kind of just trusting that we were going to do, do the right thing. And as a result, they first got a podcast as opposed to a, uh, a corporate cast or something that was overly scripted. There was no script, and I knew nothing about the part. So I was asking questions because I didn't know the answers. Um, and as a result, it, it worked well. One of the things, and we still do it to this day, I think later today they'll put up a podcast uh, where we've got music from Red Hot Chili Peppers for a promotion that's going on with some of the roller coasters at the park. One of the things, though, to answer your original question, to expand on what uh, Eric was saying, is you can't just put this thing up there and expect it to be successful. That might have worked 18 months ago, but the marketplace is too crowded now. And so there are a couple things that you need to become comfortable with particularly with what Eric said, is these long-format interviews or discussions do not work really well with PR and marketing types that want to control the message and want to control uh, uh, button points and, and little phrases and that sort of thing. Because if you get somebody on that's going to talk for 10 minutes, they're going to say something wrong somewhere in there. They're going to say something without referring to it, a legally agreed-to name for uh, you know, a product or something like that. And that's something that you need to be comfortable with ahead of time. Otherwise, you're going to end up with an overly edited audio. And the listener can hear that from a gigabyte away. They can hear that you've gone in there and started chopping it up and trying to, to intersect terms and phrases. So you do, along with this transparency, you have to allow people to just be people and realize that you can get your, your point across, but the minute you try to script it, which is something Starbucks did, everybody catches on very quickly as to what's going on. And the negative, you get negative attention as opposed to positive attention. Wayne, you've done a lot of podcasting in terms of investor relations. I know that's one thing you've done. Are people starting to accept podcasts as a method of communication that is available to anyone? And are there some things you had to step around in terms of SEC rules or whatnot to make sure that the information you put out in podcasts and your clients do uh, is publicly available, that sort of thing, so that you make sure you're not insider information? Because podcasting, in a sense, it's freeform a lot, like Michael said, and so you won't want to make mistakes on this in that way. Yeah, well, let me qualify that a little bit. I personally don't podcast, um, but I work with 300 uh, publishers out there that do podcast, so I guess I get an interesting vantage point when it comes to best practices in the industry. And I guess depending on what you're looking at, some of them are called IR podcasts, some of them are called corporate podcasts. And at the end of the day, I mean, you could have a very successful show and yet have and be unsuccessful at delivering the marketing message. So, I mean, it's, it's kind of like contradicting myself, but I mean, there have been shows that have been done, put together really well, and in the end, you're going to have to prove to your boss, you know, did I actually do what I wanted to do? Did I actually reach out? Did I actually market my product? Did I actually convince somebody to buy my product? I mean, I think over the last 18 months, we've seen a lot of... Uh, an initial round of Me Too podcasts, like, oh, a competitor is doing it, better start doing it. Um, you know, and then it's hastily done. The production quality is really nice, but at the end, you know, you don't have a listener, you don't have listeners, and, and you pointed out in Starbucks. I mean, I'm not going to say whether that was a successful or unsuccessful podcast. At least for me, it didn't have any resonance. I mean, it didn't compel me to download it, I guess, you know, I don't know Starbucks. But uh, it didn't compel me to download it, and then the only comment I noticed in the blogosphere that was interesting about the Starbucks uh, podcast was the number of times that the word coffee was spoken. You know, so did they really brand Starbucks or did they really brand coffee? And so from where I stand, you know, 
I see a lot of interesting experimentation going on. Um, a lot of it is about um, getting getting the message out in a corporate way, in a corporate manner, um, you know, full disclosure. Um, but I think it's more fundamental than that. I mean, it goes back to marketing 101. What is your message, and if you can successfully convey that message? You know, I, I think that Starbucks example is a good example. Uh, you, for people that may not have read about it, talk about that. So Starbucks put together a, a, a podcast and put it out there. And after their first episode, they had a, a story in the Chicago, what did the paper, Chicago Tribune, whatever the paper in the Chicago is, talking about how horrible this podcast was. So this wasn't normally the, the publicity you were looking for launching an initiative like this. But it's interesting to use it as an example because it's one that most podcasters have heard about. And going back to like early GM podcasts, that gets a little old and people aren't, aren't familiar with those. And Starbucks happened not long ago, but the interesting thing to me that happened with Starbucks is the minute you hear it, you realize what the purpose was. And it was what the marketing person wanted you to hear. It was the idea of selling the Starbucks brand. It was not what the listener wanted. And that's the one trick with a podcast. If you're not making the thing that the listener wants, they're not going to retrieve it. And so it's easy to sit in a boardroom and say, well, we need to push this, we need to push this. This is what we want to push on the person. And you end up with a podcast that talks at the listener as opposed to with the listener. And because the listener controls the subscription, they just turn it off. And so you've got all this, you know, you're spending tens of thousands of dollars or whatever their budget is internally to produce this thing. And it's going out to an audience of very few people, or in this case now podcasters that just want to hear how bad it is. Um, you know, and, and it was my understanding they might have even cast the roles. I have no idea if that's true or not. But rather, they have this amazing sense. I mean, I've, I've had Starbucks three times since I've been here. Amazing sense of community. A great way to talk about the experience. A great way to talk about the kinds of coffees they have. But instead, they came up with a marketing piece to really push coffee on you and the Starbucks brand, and everybody turned it off. Eric, we also hear so much about this community, about Starbucks wanting to build the community more and capitalize on that, but how does a company really do that? I mean, can can you build a community and how do you determine what they want to hear if you're not exactly sure? If you sell hard drives, do you do a podcast about how hard drives help your life or your business? I mean, how do you determine what that content should be? So, I mean, the question is, if you were a hard drive manufacturer, why wouldn't you want to be the destination that people go to online when they need information about how to store content, when they need to know about how to upgrade to the newest hard drive, when they need to know the safest way to protect their photos of their family? Why wouldn't you want to become a media owner? And that's the shift as I see it. It used to be that electronic media was controlled by the domain of skilled professionals who had high-end equipment and access to terrestrial and satellite broadcast signals. And obviously that's not the case anymore. Um, you know, if you just look at the trade show floor at CES, uh, there's some very powerful brands there that have invested heavily in, in themselves. And, and they have strong followings. And I wouldn't discount the marketers or the PR people because that's like saying that the networks or the studios have a lock on creativity. And we know that that's not the case. They buy that creativity in the form of individuals. So, um, so I mean, what's going on here is this is a chance to go direct to consumers with your message. And have you guys all seen History of the Dance on YouTube? It's the most watched video on YouTube, and it's a motivational speaker on stage dancing different dances over the course of a few minutes, and it's humorous, and it's pulled 40 million views. 40, I mean, that's huge. 
there's a lot of media outlets that don't reach that kind of an audience. So I think we're going to see a lot of pressure on media owners this year to tell marketers, hey, you know, what audience can you get us in front of that we can't get in front of ourselves? And I think we're going to see more marketers looking for the answer to that question of what is the compelling content that's going to reach the audience we want to reach. And it also gets back to the original question you asked, you know, what is the result that you want to achieve? Is it lead generation? Is it data capture? Is it transactions? Is it word of mouth? What are you trying to do with the podcast, right? And then, are you doing it? You can measure those things if you integrate the podcast and the rest of what you're doing. If you look at the podcast as a sort of snap-on marketing afterthought, you're not going to have that type of cohesion. But if you are integrating email marketing with your subscribers, if you are, if you have a SEO program, an organic search engine optimization program that helps lead people to the podcast, and if you're using the podcast to drive traffic back to the site where you can do some sort of a transaction, that, that's sort of, I think, the, the magic formula. And so, again, it gets back to my original answer. What compelling information, content do you have that's useful? It's not getting out there. What do, you, what do you know about your brands and your companies and your products that is not getting out there by other means and how can we use electronic media to get it out there? Because with a podcast, they can watch, they can listen, they don't have to read. Um, I, I can think of you know, the most dreaded words of, of a product purchase, which, which applies to this audience, some assembly required. And, and you go through these instruction manuals and it's impossible to figure it out and call customer service. Well, why don't you have a podcast to teach people how to use the product? Because it's about them having a good experience with your brand. So I think these are the types of solutions that we should be looking to podcast for. Jason, I want to get to you with uh, metrics in just a minute too, but I want to just keep going a little bit more on this topic about uh, what to do. And, and Michael, getting back to the Disneyland Resort podcast, uh, how do you get buy-in from that C-level executive suite or whatnot, the people that need to really buy into it so that your podcast, when you do start, it doesn't get buried four or five clicks away from the homepage and is kind of doomed from the beginning? Who do you need to make sure, how do you make sure that the people who are important to know about this get buy-in? Well, we were fortunate at Disneyland in that the uh, uh, Vice President of Public Relations was, was where the idea was originating from. So we had, there was no approval process. It was going to happen, and they just needed to figure out uh, how to do it. I would say that, that moving forward, one of the most important things that you need to do if it's a new initiative is to manage expectations and figure out what you want to accomplish, what, what Eric was talking about, and realize if, if this is uh, the idea of selling a product, then you need to build a podcast that's supposed to do that. If it's a way to communicate about your brand, and that all just comes down to figuring out who the listener is and then building what the listener is going to get. Uh, it's not an advertisement. You're not going to pay for placement in a, in a print magazine with it. This is something that potentially they're going to come to your site and want to consume. So you have to put something in there that they want as opposed to necessarily what you want, and then it's just finding uh, the balance of those two. The other thing moving forward is at some point this is going to become a line item in a budget, and somebody's going to want to understand what the ROI on, on this entire initiative is. Um, and I've heard it addressed a number of times. This all goes back to the original planning. What is the goal, and how can you measure whether or not you've achieved success? Is it a particular number of listeners? Is it some sort of outcome that you want to achieve? Or is this a return on influence initiative where the cost is much like just a goodwill marketing initiative, uh, you know, kind of brand alignment and, and brand imaging? But you need to go into that up front. I think too many companies now with this kind of Me Too approach, they throw a podcast out there and then they can't figure out why a million people haven't come and downloaded it. 
and, and now if you do launch one of these, you're going to have to do some marketing, and you're going to have to spread the word, and you're going to have to get it out. Let's talk about that, Jason, some of the things you can do to, to promote your podcast, since you're the expert there. Um, obviously, iTunes is a, is a huge part of podcasting. You can submit to directories. What kind of advice can you give to our audience about making sure that the, the podcast gets listened to? Uh, well, the, the biggest thing, of course, if, you, if this is for a, if you have a main major brand that your podcast is representing, then you know obviously leverage the power of that brand and whatever lists you may already have in the email or, or mailing lists or uh, you know the other marketing integrated into that and make it clear that you have this podcast. Um, so leverage that, but definitely, I mean, it goes back to what I originally said about having the right data in the feed, having the right data in the audio files so that this, you know, this is the information that shows up on people's portable players so that when this, they're listening to this, they can remember what they got, where they got it or what it is, um, you know, so that it shows up when people are searching in iTunes. I mean, more and more iTunes is becoming just as much of a search engine as Google is. And so you need to be able to, you need to think of it that way. And with so much content hitting the internet, you know, not to speak just of podcasting, you with blogs and all this other stuff, search is going to be really important. So knowing how to, uh, you know, properly put your data together and your podcast together. Um, and so, you know, specifically, you know, a little bit of tech jargon, but with your MP3 files, look at the what's called the ID3 tags. This is, you know, the, the artist and the title and, and the album and stuff. You know, that data needs to be used just like it does with a, a song by, you know, a pop artist. You also need to use that data for a podcast to have that in there. And then there's specific information that needs to be in the feed so that it, the directories will display, you know, what the name is and the web. And so when it searches, this stuff will come up. Uh, more often. Then the other thing that I encourage uh, to do about the podcast is to actually have you know a prominent place on your website where the podcast lives, probably with the blog. I highly recommend using a blog to publish your podcast, and then you know using all the technology and and community that goes behind blogs. You know, people like to link to blogs, and and, and people like to mention. You know, a blog post or a podcast on another blog, and so the easier you make it is for make it for people to link to your content. Uh, you know, that's going to put a lot of legs on and help it get out there. Uh, so and, and make it easy for people to submit your content to you know, Delicious, which is a, a social bookmarking site. So all these social media networking, you know, this is kind of a field that's starting to be called social media optimization, making it easy for your content to have legs and get out there on the internet. Um, through these social networks. So, uh, you know, if you uh, look into and understand how to use those things and make it easy for your audience, uh, your audience to, to use those tools, then it will definitely help your content go further. Let's talk about metrics for a second. First of all, do we have any questions yet? Okay, just let us know. Um, let's talk about metrics because that's a big subject that people have been talking about in podcasting for two years, that you can't track podcasting, uh, that it, that's, and that's maybe one of the reasons why they have difficulty selling it up the chains because how do we determine... Uh, how useful our podcast is. Is it downloads, complete downloads, partial downloads? Uh, if somebody downloads half your show, do you count that? Jason, what, can, can you give us kind of a baseline of where to start about how to measure success on this? Well, uh, definitely when it comes to metrics, again, this keeps getting repeated, know what the purpose of your podcast is. But no matter what the purpose is, you're going to want to know how many people are listening, how big is my audience, right? And there's a lot of different ways to, to measure this, but just a few things I'll, I'll throw out there and that you should talk to your web analytics people about is you know, look at the number of hits that are happening to the file. And a hit just means an access. Somebody went out and grabbed the file and accessed it. Now, the problem is that first the hit, it could be a partial. Somebody just grabbed it, got some info. Maybe they got it, listened to five seconds. Maybe they streamed 10 seconds and stopped it. Maybe it was a whole download. You don't know. So the next step up is to actually, uh, you know, have having your analytics to, to find out, to actually track and see how many people downloaded the whole file. 
No. Unfortunately, we, right now, we don't have the technology once they downloaded that whole file that they actually listen to it. Maybe, maybe not. And I know that I have you know, a whole slew of stuff on my iPod that I have listened to. I don't necessarily get to every episode, so that's going to be the nature of the game, too. Hopefully, we will get the technology in the future to allow us to track those listens. We don't necessarily have it right now. The other metric you can look at is bandwidth. Uh, by, by looking at the amount of bandwidth, a lot of your, your web analytics should be able to tell you, okay, this file had this much bandwidth transferred, you know, maybe a terabyte of uh, data transfer this month. And then you can divide that out by the, the average uh, you know, download amount of, of that file. So maybe that, the average download was 10 megabytes, and you know how big the file is, so you can do some divisions out. Now, you know, in this video, I can't really walk you through all the, you know, watch your bandwidth, watch your hits to the file, track your complete downloads, and then the fourth thing is look at how many people are accessing the feed on a regular basis. Not everyone is going to be subscribing to the feed and getting it through the feed, meaning that going out and checking and downloading it. Some people will be just clicking on your site and downloading it, some, will be, some people will click on a directory and download it, but it's a good idea to know how many people are subscribing because it could be argued that subscribers are more engaged listeners that have actually taken that step to say, yes, I want on a regular basis to get your content. A really good service you can check out for that is feedburner.com. Um, they can host your feed and they tell you how they track for you how many people are checking that feed on a regular daily basis for new content. And that can be called the number of subscribers that you have. Eric, for someone who says, well, I told my CEO or my vice president of marketing and they say, and their answer back is, look, Time Magazine says they have 1.2 million readers. I know that for a fact. So I know how many people are seeing my ad. Or Arbitron tells me that this radio station has this many listeners, and podcasting can't do that for me. What would you would be your answer to that? The opportunity with podcasting is the ability to marry the power of audio and video promotions with the metrics and reporting capability of the web. So if you were to house your podcast at a unique URL, and only offer that URL through programs that were marketing the podcast and through programs through which that podcast was search engine optimized, then you would know that everybody that landed to your website on that unique URL did so specifically because of the podcast. And if you had the right CRM in place and you could track the actual path that that user took once they landed on that page, you could see if you were generating sales, if you were generating leads, and you could actually count that. And that's actually more compelling than the idea of getting in front of an audience of a million readers um, because when you get in front of that when you buy that page in Time Magazine, uh, you expect to maybe get a fraction of a percentage of the audience actually interested. The rest are just going to blaze right by it, right? So why would you pay that much money for a fraction of a percentage when you could go directly to that fraction of a percentage more cost-effectively and measure the actual return. The other thing that you can measure, in addition to something like sales as a result of your podcast, which is something you can measure, um, is the media coverage. We do a podcast for the LA Opera, and the podcast was covered in the New York Times, the LA Times, the Wall Street Journal, the Hollywood Reporter, and that's real. That's real media with real reach. But rather than just getting the story in the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times and then having that newspaper become a fish wrap, we're actually driving traffic over to the client's site, laopera.com, where they can subscribe to a podcast and we can leverage that mainstream media reach to build a relationship with those that are actually interested. Michael, how much time can somebody expect to spend 
on producing that first podcast and then a series of podcasts, how many should I do a month? Um, should this be the same person who's handling marketing or should it be a new person that's brought in? That's kind of a lot of questions in one, but let's start with the time factor. How much time can you expect to spend, say, on a weekly podcast? Uh, you know, a weekly podcast is, uh, yeah, that's a commitment. And it, but again, it goes to, you know, it all goes back to that original question. Who's your listener and what are you building? Are you building a 10-minute podcast or are you building an hour-long podcast? Uh, it's a bit like asking how long will it take to write a paper? I don't know. How long is it? How many words are in it? Uh, I would tell you, though, that, uh, you know, we spend, uh, for Disney, we do them once a month. We spend a couple days actually gathering the audio, and then there's an editing process. If you're going to do it in-house, you need to find a champion. Don't saddle somebody with it. Find somebody that's interested in it, somebody that wants to, to really uh, take on the initiative. Hiding someplace in your organization is somebody that likes podcasting. Go find that person and have them build a podcast. And you can team them up with somebody from the marketing department, the communications department, whatever it might be. But you'll find that that enthusiasm that the person actually has for the project will transpire. I mean, when, when Eric goes to do something with, uh, you know, the L.A. Opera, I mean, I know that he's got people involved there that are really passionate about podcasting. And so when you get down and sit down for that interview, the fact that the person explaining what's about to happen to your interviewee is excited about the process, all of that makes its way into the audio, as opposed to, I now got to interview you about this thing. And, and so I, I really believe that that enthusiasm makes it all the way through the internet into those little earbuds or, or over those speakers. So that's my long way of answering how long this is going to take. Let's talk, let's, talk, let's talk about cost involved, because you read one article that says you can start podcasting with a $15 USB microphone from CompUSA, and another one says you can spend tens of thousands of dollars producing it. Is there some middle ground, or where should I start? I, I would tell you that producing a podcast is going to cost the exact same as writing a marketing piece. You can have somebody do it inside your office for free, or you can hire a professional writer to come in and write it. Uh, and it really depends on what you want to achieve. Uh, I'm, I'm a big proponent, particularly in the beginning, whether or not it's a long-term uh, uh, solution for you, is to bring somebody in that actually knows what's supposed to happen. There is a perception that because podcasting was started in, you know, in somebody's basement, and because a 14-year-old can do it, that if we're a big company, it's going to be easy and it's no problem. And that's where a lot of the easy wins get missed. Once uh, One-click subscription, easy uh, access to play the podcast on a website, all these little things that get put together. And if you bring somebody in that actually knows what's supposed to happen, they'll have that list and you don't have to spend any time achieving those goals. And then you can go on to build uh, the podcast that you want. And a lot of times, there can even be a handoff within the organization. Because at some point, it, be, it just becomes recording the interviews or discussions or whatever they might be, and then the audio editing. Audio editing can easily be subcontracted if you don't have somebody inside the organization. And if you have that champion we discussed, perhaps that's the person that interviews uh, for you. Other companies have taken uh, the course of hiring talent people with well-known radio or TV voices and gone that, that uh, route as well. It really depends. I mean, this is your opportunity to put an audio or video message forward. How do you want your organization to be represented? When you've seen, as you mentioned, a lot of publishers using audio podcasting now as, as part of what they're doing, any good examples of how companies have, have started using podcasting uh, in an existing campaign of, of content or if, you know, if they've just been doing text, how they integrate audio into that uh, in a way that is easy for their listeners to subscribe to? Well, what's interesting is that a lot of the companies we work with are publicly traded companies. So they already have a long track record of creating webcasts, you know, part of corporate quarterly earnings. And you get all gradients of podcast production out of it. Some of them just take the webcast and repurpose it, take the audio track and 
ta-da, you have a podcast, you know, and it doesn't cost anymore. Uh, others actually take the time, you know, put the CEO in the studio, you know, get him coached so that they could actually do, make a better presentation and then run into a lot of post-production. I mean, what's interesting is, and this is something you probably really want to consider, some, sometimes your CEO may not be, you know, the best person to speak. You know, you might have need to actually hire somebody else and it's not an ego issue. And also, what we've seen is uh, a lot of publicly traded companies also do a lot of post-production to remove the ums and ahs. Um, and suddenly, I mean, you try it yourself. You remove the ums and ahs from anything that you record, you sound eloquent. You know, take our presentations, this panel discussion up here, remove all the ums and ahs, probably like, you know, cut out half the time. Uh, so we're, from, we're seeing a lot of uh, cost variations, uh, you know, it, and it can be, you know, literally done with, you know, hundred dollars, or, you know, it could be a complete full production uh, where you get the marketing team and hire people to come in, hire the Thompsons of the world to, to come in and help create the podcast for you. Eric, you've got a lot of experience, too, integrating podcasting into an existing PR or marketing campaign. Should I be sending out audio now podcast with all of my press releases, or how do you see that best fitting? Are you giving good examples of how somebody's integrated into an existing campaign? I don't think that you should be sending out podcasts with every press release. Um, you know, as, as I said earlier, I think you should be using the podcast to get out information that's not getting out through it by other means. And you've got all this media available to you. You've got blogs available. You've got the website available. You still have radio. You still have TV. You still have brochures. You still have trade shows. So what you have to do is think about what's unique about podcasting that you can leverage. What can you use podcasting for that you're not getting something else done with? So if you, I mean, if you have an executive that speaks at a conference like this, that executive is going to invest probably 6 to 12 hours in their presentation. They're going to give their presentation, it's over, and it's gone. Maybe the show organizer will record it and, uh, and offer it on the website, but why wouldn't you take your little iRiver, like the ones down on the stage there, and record the presentation and offer it as a podcast? And I think a great example, uh, and I'll just throw it out there because you are you're the moderator, uh, Tim does a, a podcast called The Podcast Brothers. And it's Tim and Emil in the back of the room there. Raise your hand, Emil. And they produce a trade show called Podcast Expo, Podcast and Portable Media Expo. And they do these podcasts leading up to the show, talking about what's going to happen at the show, talking about who's going to be speaking at the show, and it gets the community excited about the show, and it gets people involved in the show. And people send comments to you, and you play them on the show. And I think that's a great use of a podcast to build excitement for an event that's coming up. And this all goes back to kind of, Jason, getting out of your comfort zone instead of just reading a press release, which is kind of what I think the very first, maybe the very first corporate podcast was, uh, or something like that, where, where Jim was reading press releases and they have since gone back and done some adjustments there. But uh, can you use it for, do podcasts have to go on for on and on and on as a series? Can you use it to promote an event coming up or a, a product launch that at some point that podcast series will, will end? And then what do you do with those subscribers that are subscribed? I think the, the most effective thing, if you're going to take the trouble to build up subscribers and, and bring them uh, you know, towards you to, to consume this content, is you want to continue to take advantage of uh, those people. I know a lot of people are talking 
and way, way back in the early days of podcasting, there was that Paris Hilton movie that came came out, and Warner Brothers, I think it was, built up this whole huge audience for you know a, a series of maybe ten podcasts that led up and got everybody psyched about the movie. Uh, I don't know how effective it was or not in that, but then all of a sudden they just stopped. And you know, there's talk of all these people who had downloaded and listened to this thing. Um, now this isn't a comment on the effectiveness of the content, but the problem is, is after that, what did they do with those subscribers? They didn't do anything, and so then those people just had that feed sitting there in their aggregator, and nothing happened. And they eventually probably just deleted it. Now that's not to say you couldn't do a temporary thing, but I think the most effective thing to do is, you know, at the very least, you know, if you build up to an event and you're doing it weekly or whatever, and then maybe it needs to slow down and just monthly you're sending something out to at least keep those people engaged. I think that would be probably the smartest thing to do. Um, now, if, if the circumstances really merit it, fine, you know, go ahead and do your limited uh, series of four or five or whatever. But again, if you're going to go through all that trouble of making the content, pulling people towards it, getting them subscribed, and getting them engaged, you may as well keep them there and keep their mind sharing and continue to put content out. I'd like to just throw out another idea about how you can build a, an audience for your podcast. Take a look at the most successful podcasts reaching your community already and listen to it and get familiar with it. And when you have a really great show that you're getting ready to release, take maybe a really interesting soundbite from that show, package it up uh, with a, a little opening intro that says, hi, and I listen to your show, and I thought you might find this interesting. Play the soundbite, and then of course afterwards you can say if you want to hear the whole thing, and give the URL of where they can get it, and you can actually send that out to other podcasters prior to releasing your show. Um, and you might even give it exclusively to one podcaster you think really has reach, or you might blitz and go to three or four that you think have reach. But you'll find the podcast community will embrace that because this is programming on demand. I'm not competing for, for ears or, or eyeballs at 8 o'clock on Wednesday, right? You can consume this anytime you like. So it's not directly competitive. So I think that's a great way to build an audience for your podcast. Think about packaging these smaller segments that feature an excerpted soundbite from your podcast, sending it out to other podcasters in an email and asking them if they'd be interested in playing it in their show. I would also add that sometimes the best way to market your products through a podcast may be not necessarily to produce a podcast. You know, listen to the other podcasts and maybe there's someone who's already producing a great show which would perfectly match the product that you're trying to market. Maybe Tim's show is already reaching out to a certain audience in the, you know, the, in the expo industry, and that's what your product is. And you know, maybe all you need to do is produce a segment that would be embedded into somebody else's podcast, which already has a listenership. So you don't. Not everybody has to. Okay, get a budget, and okay, let's build the best podcast chat podcast out there. Uh, I mean, there are other, and I guess what I'm really saying is, sometimes you may you may simply want to advertise in another podcast, and you would actually get a much bigger return than by trying to do everything yourself. That's a good point, Wayne, and I want to address that too in just a second about whether or not you advertise on another podcast. But I want to get into the audio versus video. Michael, you've got some experience with this. But video seems to be the hot thing on the web right now. Everybody's talking about how much better. Well. People are talking about how much better video might be in terms of compelling content to audio, but there's a whole other set of situ- 
circumstances to think about whether you're going to do video or audio. What's your thoughts on things to consider? Well, video is certainly sexier. Everybody's excited about it. Uh, I would look at the consumption uh, process, though. You can you can consume an audio podcast differently than a video podcast. Uh, a lot of people will listen to a 45-minute video or audio podcast if it comes out for maybe once a month. 45-minute video podcast is a much uh, a, a much stricter requirement. You have to sit and consume this thing. Whereas with an audio, I can listen to it while I'm on the treadmill or something like that. I, I can do it while I'm driving. I don't have to have this video in front of me. Um, I know that at Disneyland, we do about a 30 to 40 minute audio podcast once a month, and then there's about a five to six uh, minute video podcast that's uh, done by their internal broadcast services once a month. And I think that's kind of the sweet spot for what they want to do. The other thing that goes on with video, though, is you have this whole viral component. I mean, I haven't seen yet an audio podcast that everybody in the world links to and says, you got to check this out. Whereas with uh, video, you, you get that whole uh, cubicle worker approach where everybody in the building has seen you know, some guy do a dance or somebody you know, do something with some Diet Pepsi or Diet Coke, whatever it might be. I don't know how you can... That gets a little bit tougher, though, from a marketing point. I mean, if, if, if Coke was behind the whole Mentos thing, that's brilliant. But if it's not, it's just kind of a funny little thing and they get a, a huge fringe benefit out of these uh, exploding uh, Coke bottles. The, the viral component, I think, is appealing, and I think that's why a lot of people traction towards it. The other thing is the cost to get involved to produce an audio podcast is uh, a, a, a number of um, factors make it much less expensive as opposed to video. The other thing is you are competing with people. Uh, we brought somebody to Disneyland that did a show called 88 Slot. He had his host, he had one home video camera, and he had one assistant that was using a, a bounce for some lights. We were able to shoot six episodes in a day at Disneyland, and he was done. Meanwhile, if, if that had been a corporate initiative, there would have been lots of people, lots of cameras, lots of money. And so one of the interesting things is if you're going to make a video podcast, go and take a look at some of them, because you'll notice that you don't necessarily need to spend $30,000 to produce a video podcast, because the guy that you're competing against might have spent $300, and in many cases, he's probably doing a better job, because he doesn't have as many constraints. And get in, get his video, and get out, depending on what it is. I do want to disagree with something Wayne said, though, because uh, you know this panel's boring unless there's some. Let's, let's have some arguments. This makes it good. Yeah. So um, I'm not a big proponent of getting rid of every ah. And, um, now, in, a, in an investor yeah. relation call, that is great. Your your, your CEO will sound pristine. But I really believe that one of the attractions of audio podcasts is you feel like you're in the conversation. And it is important that if you are going to launch this initiative, get some buy-in. I mean, one of the first interviews I did for Disney was Michael Eisner and then Bob Iger. So, I mean, those are guys are hard to get a hold of, and we had both of them on the first show that we did. But at the same time, we didn't edit them. I mean, you know, they're good speakers, and we let them, we let them talk. I like a little bit of natural sound in there. And we like to run interviews for six, seven, eight minutes. And you get ahs, and you get ums, and you get pregnant pauses. But the listener, I think, identifies that with that because they feel like they're in the conversation. But that goes again to my whole perception that we should be talking with the listener as opposed to at the listener. I, I think that if you build an overly polished product, I'm not as convinced that it's as compelling. And Eric, then how do you get buy-in from the marketing department who wants to control that message? Do you have to, should you put some of it in their hands so they feel like they have control over it a little bit or it should absolutely not be those same people and make sure that they don't have the ability to, to, to stop a podcast because it doesn't have just the right feel or marketing message a company wants? Well, I mean, some 
companies are going to have the stomach for this and some aren't. Some are ready and some aren't. I think it's naive. It's unrealistic to think that the marketing department is going to back out of the process. They're responsible for communicating the attributes of the brand to, to, to your consumer audience. So, um, I, no, I don't, I don't think they should be uh, isolated from the process. I really think it's, um, it's, it's, I mean, the way I look at it for myself, I, I see it as my responsibility to um, sort of hold their hand and walk them through the process and make it easy for them. And um, also, you know, one of the nice things about being a consultant in that type of scenario is if it doesn't work out, they're not holding the bag. And I can sort of posture my agency in that area so that, you know, we, we sort of insulate them from much of the risk. Um, I, you know, I, I don't sell marketers short at all. Uh, you know, marketers are ultimately behind some of the uh, some of the best TV shows, some of the best movies, some of the best music that's out there. I mean, if you look at the most popular musical artists uh, today, I mean, they are marketing vehicles. You know, it's it's not their talent that got them in many cases to where they are. It's the genius of marketing. And the same is true in many cases with television shows and in many cases with movies. I mean, these things get so heavily marketed and uh, and so promoted that ultimately they win buy-in from the marketplace. So I think uh, uh, it's, it's beholden upon us as podcasters and as people who are going to help others uh, integrate podcasting into their market communications infrastructure to teach them how to do it and to get them involved because... I mean, I've listened to a lot of podcasts that start out really crummy and then get really good around episode 12 or 13. I mean, this is a learned skill. And if you do it, you can learn how to do it. Uh, You could probably accelerate the process by learning from an outside consultant or reading up and becoming an expert yourself. Um, But uh, at the end of the day, if you have the time to do this, I think you can learn to do this. Some people are going to be... um, likable hosts and others aren't. I mean, the notion of likability, and there's a reason why Katie Couric is America's sweetheart. She's very likable, and it's very important that whoever is going to carry the torch uh, for your brand be be extremely likable. Um, One of the things, just just to get back on another point that that Michael was talking about when it comes to cost, you know, a lot of times you'll come to these panels and people will say, podcasting is is really not that expensive. All you need is this year. And what I want you to do is separate for a moment the thought of the gear from the content. Um, yeah, you're going to have to invest, you know, maybe a thousand or two thousand dollars to get going with a podcast, an audio podcast rig. I don't know, maybe five, ten thousand dollars of video podcast rig. I mean, it's really inconsequential in terms of the amount of money, but the amount of time is significant. So we're looking at podcasts now. If we produce a pod, podcast we produce for clients, and we produce a lot of B2B podcasts, we've got eight hours in a podcast. That's two hours with a senior level practitioner, three hours with a um, with an admin. Uh, there's an hour of, of typing to get the show notes ready. There's a couple hours of editing. So, I mean, it's time. It's time of the day, and time is money. And you know, if you are going to stand out on YouTube amongst millions and millions of people that are competing for your attention, it's not just networks anymore. Now you're up against blogs, and podcasts, and websites, and video games, and multitasking. So if you want them to find you, you're going to have to have something pretty compelling. 
So it's one thing to get the rig all built. You can pull that off. It's not going to be hard. The technology is fairly easy, fairly inexpensive. I think the expensive part, the money's going to come with coming up with the, the really smart idea that really executes effectively on your strategy, you know, measuring it and then maintaining it. Because you're going to find that once you, you know, once you start this thing, you're going to have to continue to feed it. So I think that that's what I, I hope you would take away from, from that comment, the idea that it is a serious investment of time to do one of these effectively. Jason, let's talk real briefly too about advertising in a podcast versus starting your own. And the two don't have to be exclusive. You could do both. But if you've got a podcast out there that is the audience that you want to reach anyway with your own podcast, uh, how would you go about approaching them as an advertiser and what should that look like? Should it be a regular radio ad that I transfer to them to run before their podcast? Should I pitch them on interviewing my VP of marketing? What should that look like? Well, if you're going if you're going to a podcast to advertise with them, imagine the attraction that you have is the fact that they have already built up a relationship with a certain number of people, and hopefully you realize that even if that number of people is only a thousand or two thousand versus you know the, the tens of thousands you can reach with a, a magazine or something, you, you can realize that. You know, that relationship is very niche and very specific, and, and so your your return on investment is going to be a lot more focused with those people. Now, when you come and approach what what works seems to work best with podcasting, in my opinion, is leveraging best to best leverage that relationship is that find somebody, a podcaster, who really can believe in what in your product. You know, they're not just saying words because you're paying them to say them. But you know, rather than just sticking your 30-second spot in them, in there, they are actually, in their words, knowing what their audience wants to hear. You know, talking about your product and recommending it, and respecting that relationship that they have with their audience, and not just you know selling it out uh, just because you're going to give them ten thousand or twenty thousand dollars to say you know good things about your product. So, I think. Realizing and allowing and asking that pod, you know, asking that podcaster who their audience is and what they want to hear, and allowing that person to maybe form and shape the message a little bit. Not trying to control it to your exact words and have just your thirty-second spot. You're going to give a lot more, uh, you know, leverage out of that relationship that he or she has with their audience than you know if you just try to you know stick a, a you know square peg in a round hole. And so that's you know one piece of advice I give on that. Michael, you've had some experience on the great radio side, lots of advertisers there because uh, it's a high-end, really nice demographic for a lot of those advertisers. What's worked in terms of anything creative that advertisers have done through great radio that has gotten a good return for the advertiser? Uh, well, we've done a number of things. We sell a, a weekly, what we call a sponsorship on great radio. The, the show is produced weekly. We, we now do video as well and, and sell those sponsorships. In the world of podcasting, it's $1,300, um, not a ton of money in, in, you know, for any marketing budget, but in the, kind of the, the very niche, niche world of wine, uh, the fact that we've been sold out for months at that rate compared to the podcast is, is the thing that gets the most attention. Uh, I, I think that the thing we feel best about is many of the advertisers are coming back. The one thing that we have struggled with, um, or that actually other podcasts really struggle with, is we've never sold it based on any sort of metric that is out there. So we don't sell it on a cost per thousand. It's $1,300 for our listeners. We've had people that have tried to figure out internally whether or not that makes sense for them. But we've always believed that we're going to we're, we're putting the brand behind your message. We only take one sponsor. It's not like radio where you're up against six other spots in six minutes after the hour. And so there's going to be some affinity. Uh, and that's been really successful for us. 
We've had um, everybody from the Champagne Council that wants to make sure that if you're outside of France, you don't call sparkling wine champagne, to uh, the city of Miami uh, have both uh, re-upped on numerous occasions, and that's been really successful for us. But we really sell the unique value of that particular podcast. So if you're on the other side of the, the table, why would you want to deal with us rather than somebody that's cheaper? Well, the fact that we charge that has a lot to do with the care and attention we put into the show, and I think that that ends up translating into our listeners. We had uh, an advertiser recently that was upset that he only got eight phone calls off of uh, a $1,300 spot, and we then asked, well, how many sales did you complete? And he said, oh, never mind, I'll buy some more. So the, the, the fact was we were targeting the right people. You know, that's a good story. I'm glad it worked out that way, that he got the, the number of sales that he was looking for. But that's really what this podcast allow you to do, is drill down in so that you don't have to deal with any of the fluff and realize, if I'm going to sell a particular product or service, can I find a podcast that is targeting that exact group and then just advertise there? That, that makes me make a good point about the expectations of that. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Where do you place that? And if you're, when you say virgin, that's what we uh, yes, yeah, so we run one. So if you are going to sponsor the show, Great Radio, you will sponsor the show for this week. It's thirteen hundred dollars. We'll do like a four-week buy and a slight discount. And you are the sponsor. It's all uh, uh, host red, so we don't run an audio spot. And it's up front and again at the end. And the acknowledgement will be as part of the show. Isn't there web stuff you do with that? Well, we put yeah, we put there's a, a banner ad up on the side, things like that. And Eric, I'll finish up with you. I'm going to leave just a few minutes at the end for you to come up and ask some questions if you don't want to ask it in the group. But should, should you manage expectations for your podcast initiative? I mean, if somebody's thinking that the success is going to be a million downloads in the first month, how do I manage the expectations to my boss or whatnot that this is what we're going to consider a success and then set those benchmarks before you even start podcasting? Raise your hand if you're a marketer. Raise your hand if you're in PR. Raise your hand if you're in uh, investor relations or an investor interested in that at all. Anybody, everybody know what whisper numbers are? So if you play the stock market, uh, the whisper number is the number on the street that the stock is supposed to hit by the time the, ten, the quarterly filing is made. And uh, the speculators will trade based on whether or not the company hits the whisper number. And the whisper number is not the number that the CEO or the CFO gives in the conference call with all the analysts. It's the number on the street that they're really meant to hit. So so think, I, I would like you to think about that same concept in terms of podcasting here. If you think you're going to draw a thousand listeners, if you, really, you feel really confident that you're going to be able to do that, you probably should say that you think you'll... You know, the whisper number should be 800 listeners, and then you're going to be able to exceed your expectations. You know, set expectations that you can exceed. Um, in terms of you know, the scenario that I mentioned before, where you park the podcast center on your site at a unique URL, and then you can measure click-throughs to transactions, that's something that you can actually see how much money you generated um, off, of, off of a podcast. Another example, and this is something that we do in press releases, we do search engine optimized press releases. And um, there are cases where we've come into the client and we've said, hey, here's the headline, uh, cheap product uh, goes on sale. And they'll say, we don't have cheap products here. We're the low price leader. 
And then we go to Google Trends and we see, well, people are searching for cheap products. They're not searching for low-fare products. Matter of fact, we can quantify the number of difference between those searches. And then they scratch their head and they say, okay, let's give it a try. And then we bury unique URLs in the press release and we actually can count the number of people that are coming over and doing a transaction. Well, with a podcast, a lot of people will put together show notes. It's not quite an audio transcript. It's sort of a description like you might find in TV Guide, right? TV Guide is going to tell you what the show is about, but they're not going to give away the punchline because they want you to actually watch the show. So, you know, if it was um, uh, American Idol, they're not going to tell you who won. They're going to tell you who's going to compete. And so if you create show notes like that and you search engine optimize those show notes and cross-post them to a blog, you can start to track those click-throughs. So I think, my feeling is... You shouldn't really be so focused on the number of listeners as much as the number of leads generated or the number of transactions stimulated or the amount of data captured or the word of mouth generated because those are real measurements. So, And I think on the CPM level, you're not going to be able to compete. This is not broadcast. This is niche casting, the ultimate in niche casting. Well, I want to thank you all for being here. I uh, appreciate uh, you spending an hour with us. Thanks for our panelists. appreciate uh, your information here. If you have any questions, hopefully they can sit up here for just a few minutes, and you're welcome to come up and, and ask. So thanks very much for being here. You've been listening to On the Record Online with Eric Schwartzman, where reporters and journalists go on the record about how they use the web to cover the news. For the latest trends, tips, and tactics on how the web impacts corporate reputations, subscribe to our RSS news feed or visit us online at www.ipressroom.com.